Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Served on the rocks. This week, we talked to Dr. David Binion. Dr. Binion is a professor of medicine, clinical, and translational science, and co-director of the UPMC IBD Center at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Dr. Binion is a physician scientist who also happens to be living with Crohn's disease, and he is the recipient of the 2018 Sherman Prize for bringing precision medicine to inflammatory bowel disease. We talked to him about what it was like to be diagnosed with Crohn's disease before the information age and before there were really any great treatments. We talked to him about how he's devoted his career to analyzing big data to figure out how to predict disease outcomes, prognosis, and flares. And we talked to him about his longitudinal research and what he's learned and how that's given him hope as an IBD patient. We also talked to him about what he's seeing in reclassifying IBD into more subcategories and what that will mean for more effective treatment and also what he sees on the horizon for IBD research. We had such a great conversation with Dr. Binion, and we know you'll love him as much as we did. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bowel Moments. This is Robin. Hey, guys. This is Alicia, and we are so very excited to be joined by Dr. David Binion. Dr. Binion, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here this evening. Thank you so much for the invitation. You say it's a pleasure, but you haven't spent that much time with us yet, so you may change your mind. You never know. This is true. (laughs) But we are so excited to have you on the show and to hear more about your research, your work, and yourself as well. But our first very unprofessional question for you is, what are you drinking? I actually came with, I'm a two-fisted drinker, so I have this nice big glass of water, which I am supposed to have finished by now, and I haven't. And depending on how the evening goes, I will break into one of Pennsylvania's finest fermented products for adults, (laughs) a Yangling Lager, a Yangling Lager. Yes, the Yingling brand is is something to be proud of. Excellent. Well, let us know if you if you break it open. Robin, what about you? Okay. I have way too many different kinds of sparkling water. I'm just going to acknowledge that right now. <laughs> Today I'm drinking Perrier, the French version of sparkling water, and I have one of my little true oranges in there. But look at my pretty, oh, can you see it? My pretty glass yeah. with my little orange wedge. I made it fancy. It's fancy for you, Dr. Binion. Fancy for you. Much appreciated. Thank you. (laughs) Alicia, what are you drinking? Well, I was going to make myself a margarita, but I don't have any tequila, turns out. So it is a bit of a conglomeration. I know, right? Surprising for me. So it is margarita mix with coconut rum and passion fruit syrup. So a lime and a coconut, you put it all together. You want me to sing the song? (laughs) It's an adventure in a glass. It's an adventure. It it sounds like an adventure in a glass. (laughs) Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Dr. Binion, this is not about what I craft for my liquor cabinet. It is about you. So next question for you is tell us your IBD story. What made you become a gastroenterologist? What made you specialize in inflammatory bowel disease? It's not a completely unique story because there are more and more of us who have actually come into the in, into the space of becoming gastroenterologists and IBD-focused physicians who actually have Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease. So um, I was actually diagnosed with Crohn's disease back in high school as a junior, and that was a long time ago. And having interaction with healthcare early on and actually being fortunate to have interaction with physicians who were really outstanding physicians who, you know, back in the 19, late 1970s, 
IBD was not nearly as effective a field as we are. And patients were unfortunately relegated to prednisone and maybe sulfasalazine. That was kind of all we had to offer back in the good old days. But despite the fact that we had limited options, I was fortunate to be cared for by a gastroenterologist who told me to to take on challenges, to not let it hold me back. And that was actually the opposite of what textbooks used to say back in the old days. It would, you know, the Harrison's textbook of medicine in the mid-1970s had two paragraphs on Crohn's disease. And it said, patients should be discouraged from taking on ambitious careers because it will be disappointing. And that wasn't that long ago. Wow. I, in some regards, took to heart the recommendations of my my first gastroenterologist and thought that I could offer something to people with IBD and give something back to the field. And it has been sort of a defining feature of my career in medicine. And, and I feel incredibly lucky because I get to take care of people who I really understand. And, you know, it's, it's always, in, in some regards, it's an unfair advantage because I know what it feels like. I've probably been there, probably had that complication. So it's it's a very personal, a very obvious reason that I went into GI and I actually went into IBD research, which has been one of the most, uh, that's one of the greatest privileges I could have thought of is to have the opportunity to be creative, to try to solve problems, to really push the push the edges of what we don't know farther away and to come up with answers and take a better, be able to take better care of our patients. Such a lovely thing to say that that's such a privilege to be doing because, yeah, I think people must really respond to you well, though, when they learn that you have IBD or when you have Crohn's disease, if you tell them. Do you tell them? Um, it's pretty much out there on the web. So <laughs> okay. um, if people stalk me on Google, they'll find you know more than enough either stories. You know, I, I was fortunate to win the Sherman Prize a few years ago, and the video actually talks all about this. So. But uh, it, some people don't know, and it's surprising. I'll, I'll bring it up at some point in the course of conversation. So, but I, I think it's helpful because you know it brings a level of trust and understanding. You know what we do in medicine is we oftentimes recommend things, and people are oftentimes scared. And one thing I I try to help my trainees understand is that what we consider regular being physicians and healthcare providers is the worst day of someone's life when they get sick and they're in the hospital and. It's so routine for us to drive to work and be in the hospital. And it's a terrifying place for people who aren't used to it. And the mere fact that you can relate to people who are on the other side of the bed and you can hopefully give them some level of relief because it's hard. It's hard. Being sick is terrible. Being a patient is not easy. And, you know, maybe it gives you a little bit more perspective, put it that way. For sure. I think one thing that just gets misunderstood perhaps or discounted is that how difficult it is to make decisions when you're feeling so sick too. You know, when you are truly, truly ill and people are asking you to make big decisions like surgery or, or trying a new medication or doing these big shifts, it's it's right. really intimidating, I would imagine, to a lot of people. So being able to have somebody who really you trust to guide you to make the right decision would be really important. And I think it would be, you know, having somebody like you who has that background that understands having to make these decisions, I think would be really um it would make a lot of people feel very comfortable in their choices. So I, I began by describing what it was like in the 1970s where we had nothing to offer. And now we have so much to offer. It becomes this litany, this this like a la carte menu of all the things you can choose. So it, it has really come full circle in terms of where we are as a field. But, you know, things are a lot better. Things are just so much better. People do better. It is 
you know, granted, these are not great problems to have, but we can offer so much more to help people at the present time than where we've been in the past. So lots of lots of progress. Talk a little bit more about the the changes that you've seen, because you you sort of joked to us that you've having Crohn's disease for 45 years means that you've seen the full spectrum of absolutely nothing or and or just prednisone to now having so many different choices in the biologic side of the world or treatment decisions to make. So talk a little bit about kind of the evolution. And the other thing is, as a researcher, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about what it was like to talk to patients when you started getting into that first wave of like biologics and some of these sort of immune changing medications and how you talk to patients about getting involved in either clinical trials or moving into a product that seems like something kind of out of science fiction almost. Um, So I I think the biggest thing that has helped is just the awareness of inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, we live in this age of information now where we think it's, it's just second nature to, you know, look at your phone to get an answer, you know. So back in the good old days, before we had the internet, you'd have to go to a library and you'd have to look things up in Index Medicus and find journal articles and it was extremely restrictive. And as a civilian, there was really nowhere to turn. There was really no support groups. There was no talk about these issues. They were granted they were a little bit more rare, perhaps back several decades ago. But you know, the the our foundation, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation's initial version, the the National Foundation for Iliitis and Colitis, NFIC, was one of the few sort of clearing houses for information for patients. And that has come into this completely new era where we're having discussions like this as a podcast. And there are support groups and you can find, you know, people who have had an experience with chronic illness, you know, sharing their stories. You know, I th- every few years I get to hear about the Camp Oasis that Crohn's and Colitis does for teenagers and young people. And I'm like, boy, that would have been nice. <laughs> It would have been nice in the good old days because if we think of IBD as an isolating problem now, several decades ago, it was horribly isolating because you never knew anyone else. It was never discussed. Now you can't turn on a sporting event without seeing TV commercials for drugs that are used to treat these problems. So it is so much better now in terms of just being aware and destigmatized. Um, I think that has been a huge help. I think the familiarity with the disease process and the familiarity with the medicines that are being advertised is also has some good aspects. You know, we don't want to practice medicine based on commercials, but the awareness that has, I think, reached the the, the public psyche has been incredibly helpful in some regards. Okay, I'm going to throw you a question out of left field, just based on something that you just said. Do you think that was so rare previously because there were fewer cases? Or do you think that it was so rare previously because it was misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed? Because people just didn't know about it because there was community community GIs, not IBD specialists. Yeah, those are really fascinating questions. So I, I think it's a combination of all of the above. So you, you have to undergo testing typically to get diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease. So you have to have a colonoscopy, you have to have x-ray studies, and that technology has become an incredibly commonplace throughout the United States. It wasn't always that way in the U.S. So the ability to make diagnoses is so much easier now. Um, that's one aspect. 
but I do think there has been an epidemiologic expansion of people who suffer from chronic inflammatory disorders in general and IBD in particular. So Mm -hmm. IBD has become 1% of the U.S. population. So over 3 million people in the U.S. are estimated to have some form of inflammatory bowel disease. And we see an epidemiologic reoccurrence in developing world. So as countries become westernized, as they become wealthier, we see this rise that is reproduced in country after country after country. So there's something about the way we live. There's something about the environment that impacts people who have some underlying risk. It's probably a genetic risk in many individuals. Um, We don't know the answers yet, but we see this recurrence that is basically in a fairly reproducible format. And I think there are more people now who have it than ever before. So, One of the things you mentioned before we hit record was about the research that you're doing that that sort of includes a longitudinal study of more than 5,000 people Mm -hmm. and about how you've been able to see some patterns that have come up because of, you know, having this big, big subgroup. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Like talk about what you've seen and your theories. That's not the right one. Hypotheses that have come because of it. So I moved to the University of Pittsburgh in 2008. And there was this opportunity to work with really world-class colleagues at University of Pittsburgh. And UPMC is a, is not just one hospital. UPMC is actually a healthcare delivery system that has 40 hospitals. It has over 600 outpatient clinics. And we all share an electronic medical record. So we have this ability to really understand our patients in a much more granular way because we see all the events that are occurring. We see the primary care visits. We have all the OBGYN visits. We have all of the other health issues that might arise across a person's lifespan. And the University of Pittsburgh had been designated by the NIH as one of the genetic discovery centers for the purpose of defining the genetic architecture of IBD. And this was worked up by Rick Dura, my colleague, Miguel Ruggiero, who had been a part of the IBD Center at University of Pittsburgh before he moved over to Cleveland five years ago. And they had started a effort to warehouse clinical data, and they had a consent form that allowed for this to occur. And this was back around maybe 2001. And then the federal laws that are privacy health laws, the HIPAA laws, come into effect in 2003. And HIPAA is incredibly important. It's, a, it's important for people to have the ability to protect their healthcare information. But there was one unfortunate side effect of that, which was it really made it more difficult to do clinical research. And those of us who are in academic centers, we ideally would like to take care of our patients, but also to learn and move the field forward. The consent form that was developed as part of the genetic discovery effort was grandfathered in, and we have continued to use it. And it gives us permission to work with our consented patients' information in a way that is incredibly useful. It's incredibly I think it's incredibly important to sort of track people's outcomes over time. And it takes a few years sometimes for an IBD patient to really declare themselves, to give you a sense of where they're headed and the trajectories that they're going to be heading in. Hopefully, it's going to be a mild trajectory where they do well, but some people won't be so lucky. And we can actually track these outcomes over the course of multiple years and then reverse engineer biomarkers that would then link up with some of the more serious and severe trajectories. So this natural history effort that is 
integrated into the electronic medical records. We have basically been harvesting data from the EMR for, again, the past approximately 15 years now, data that we've put together. And we overlay forms on top of this. We have quality of life scores, disease activity scores. We've actually been looking at the autonomic nervous system. We've been tracking diet prospectively in over 2,000 people now since the beginning of 2015. So we're going to have a, uh, basically, it's going to be close to nine years of data on diet. And we're actually taking all of these data sets and then overlaying them to understand the clinical factors that are associated with doing well, the factors associated with doing poorly, defining subgroups of interest. And then that should theoretically become the the foundation for developing precision medicine. So you know, as, as we've talked about the evolution therapeutically from having little to nothing to offer now to having a, a panoply of choices, we really do need to match up the right patient with the right medicine so that we can get the best outcome. And I don't, I personally do not feel that this is a impossible task. I think it is a very doable task, but we have to change the paradigm. We're limited by this concept of Crohn's and UC, when in reality, we have to sort of embrace the complexity of what we're dealing with, and that will actually allow us to finally make the breakthroughs that we need. That's super, super interesting. And and the one thing you mentioned is, you know, kind of using the examples from some of the other um, disciplines like rheumatology or dermatology, where, you know, like you said, you don't have inflammatory skin condition, you have all of these different subtypes. So how close to really being able to stratify these are we? So I, I personally think the stratification is already there. And we've been publishing on this topic for a few years now. I think we have to in some regards, validate what we've seen locally in Pittsburgh and in our system with other systems. And I think that will start to make some breakthroughs. I think a nice example of this is the progress that's been seen in asthma. So asthma is a very common chronic inflammatory disorder involving a mucosal surface. It just so happens to be the lung. It's not the GI tract. And there's roughly 10% of young adults who have some form of asthma. Mostly it's a nuisance. Most People with asthma will occasionally use an inhaler. You know, if there's particularly bad pollen counts, they might feel some tightness in their chest, cold weather, exercise. These are some of the things that can induce symptoms of asthma. But there are some people, not all, but some people who suffer from a much, much more severe version of asthma where they end up hospitalized or they get end up in the intensive care unit and they can't get off prednisone because they have such a severe lung inflammation that's literally life-threatening. So there was a group of asthma investigators, Sally Wenzel is at the University of Pittsburgh. She was a part of this original group. Then they banded together and they formed something called the Severe Asthma Research Program, the SARP. And the institutions, UCSF, Cleveland Clinic, Pittsburgh, Wake Forest, those four institutions came together and they agreed uh, to create a structure that would help them to identify who were the sickest people, who were the individuals who would suffer from severe, potentially life-threatening asthma. And they did it in an incredibly simple way. They did it in an incredibly simple way. And they, in order to help the patients help them discover what was happening, they asked simple questions. Have you ever been hospitalized for asthma? Have you ever had prednisone for uh, asthma attack? And if the patients remembered being hospitalized in ICU needing prednisone, they said yes. And that quickly brought the asthma cohort down to a four or five percent of the, the total. And that group, which is the very, very sick group, the group that could really have life-threatening illness, basically has 
three distinct phenotypes or endophenotypes, probably the better word. And they have high eosinophil counts in a subgroup. They have another group that has um, obesity-associated asthma in adulthood, and the mechanism involves nitric oxide. And then there's another group that has high IgE. And you very quickly see biomarkers that are linking to groups and therapies that are targeting those groups. And that's where you have huge success. So if you lump it all together and say, we have great drugs for asthma, but you're not really teasing it down to the to the subgroups who are going to have the most benefit, it becomes a lost opportunity to actually make that life-changing therapeutic intervention in the right person, not make it a trial and error process, but you're really targeting the right, the right drug to the right mechanism to get the best outcome. And I personally think that paradigm is an incredibly effective paradigm. And that paradigm will also work in the field of inflammatory bowel disease, but it's going to take a different way of thinking. Right now, we've lumped people together and embraced this concept of Crohn's and UC, and we have to do that at some level. But we also need to be open to the concept of subgroups. And those subgroups are going to be linked to biomarkers. I personally think the biomarkers that are successful in asthma could be the exact same biomarkers we could borrow to have success in inflammatory bowel disease. And we've actually published on eosinophilia. It happens in about 20% of our patients. Those patients don't do as well with some of our really blockbuster success drugs that target the wrong cytokine networks. And we have opportunities to actually use anti-cytokine therapies that really align with the molecular underpinnings of who these people are. And this is doable. And I and you know, this is why I get up every day and slog through the next round of experiments and rejected papers and rejected grants because it will come to pass. It will come to pass. You mentioned that getting with other institutions or other researchers and like getting together, do you think that's the next step? I think whenever people work in in groups and teams, it's to everyone's success. So I think in, in some regards, we have had such huge technological breakthroughs in our ability to understand the genetics of various patient groups, including IBD patients. We have the ability to understand the microbiome, the metabolome, the GI tract. So we have these high throughput technologies that give us this incredibly detailed information. We have single cell gene expression analysis available to us. The thing that we haven't been able to do a great job on is the clinical phenotyping. The clinical phenotyping, which is what we deal with in clinic when we sit and work with people on a day-in, day-out basis, is actually what's held us back. And that's what we've put our big emphasis on. If we really make an effort to define the subgroups of our patients at a clinical level, I think that provides the the sort of missing piece of the puzzle that will then allow us to understand the complexity of the genetics and the multi-omic integration studies that we're, we're basically hoping to achieve. So I think it's doable. I think it's very doable. I think, you know, we're going to keep doing the, the work that we've set out to do. And, you know, hopefully we'll see some centers. We, we're starting to see this happen now where other centers in the world are, are starting to reproduce some of the things that we've seen in the Eastern affiliate cohort. Um, but that's only one of the subgroups that we've identified so far. There are more. That was going to be my question. Do you see any other centers doing the work that you're doing? 
So it, it depends. We put a huge emphasis on evidence-based medicine clinical trials, but that's a very discrete data set that doesn't capture everything that happened before. So the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation is going to build the data sets that will probably be able to validate our efforts in the not-too-distant future, the, the SPARC cohort, the, the big attempts to get these multi-center data sweeps. And you know much of what we've discovered is coming from routine clinical care. So I think that's going to make it imminently translatable in, in terms of bringing precision medicine to, to our patients pretty rapidly. One of the things you said just a second ago was that one of the things that maybe hasn't had as much attention or hasn't been done the same is the work that's being done kind of one-on-one with patients, the sort of phenotyping that happens in, in your routine clinical care of patients. Why is that the, the piece that hasn't been as developed? Is it because it's not a specific test that has objective measures? Is it because that typing is happening by a physician that may have slightly different understanding of a thing versus you? Does that make um, sense? So the, the clinical phenotyping and the clinical substratification of IBD patients has been hard because IBD is a complex problem and it evolves, it changes over time. So there are some people as an example, who have lots of GI symptoms when their disease is active, but when they go into remission, they feel well. So that's roughly two out of three people. If we look at the remaining third, it probably breaks into two equal groups of around 15, 16% each, where some people have very, very little symptomatology. They have no real pain. They feel fine. But you, when you do some investigation, you actually find that they have very active disease and the inflammatory biomarkers are elevated. They have anemia. If you were to do a scope exam, you'd see a lot of injury in their GI tract, but they just don't feel a lot of symptoms. So we've actually labeled that group the silent cohort. And we've, again, borrowed a concept from cardiology. In medical school, you're, you're taught early on to watch out for silent ischemia. And silent ischemia is essentially a person who's suffering from coronary artery disease, but they don't have chest pain. They don't have classic chest pain. And people with diabetes are perhaps the best example of a group that doesn't have classic symptoms. They have a real problem, but they can't give you a heads-up warning about it because they don't have chest pain. They might feel some sweating. They might feel some indigestion, but they're not going to tell you I have classic squeezing chest pain for cardiac ischemia. And unfortunately, that ends up having this lost opportunity to intervene before it becomes a very serious problem with a myocardial infarction. So there's about 15, 16% of our IBD patients in a referral cohort who have very minimal symptomatology. They feel great. And if you base all of your clinical research on how are you feeling, I feel great. They're, you're always going to put them in the group doing fantastic, but they have problems that are going to simmer and come up to the fore, and then they're going to develop a complication and have something bad happen. And they just never had the early warning mechanism to give us a heads up in this regard. The other 15, 16% are tormented with symptoms all the time, despite the fact that they've healed, despite the fact that we don't find objective evidence of inflammation anymore. And symptoms are happening maybe because of nerve injury, maybe because of surgically altered anatomy, but we don't really see inflammation being the dominant active feature that's contributing to their illness. And chronic pain is definitely a feature of patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And it's one of our most challenging aspects in medicine because we just don't have a perfect one-stop shopping solution for chronic pain yet. 
So that's sort of an example of the heterogeneity of the patient population. But if you're not looking for that complexity, and if you're not trying to figure out how does my patient report their illness, you, you may get a little bit confounded by this. So the way people report their disease, that's one aspect. The responses to drug therapy, it's sometimes hard to tease out when are we truly seeing a drug fail because it's not able to control inflammation, or perhaps could this be a person who's too far through their natural history, and now they're dealing with stricture problems and partial blockages in their GI tract. So these are layers of complexity that are superimposed on IBD that are much harder than what we might see in problems like skin disease, where you can actually look at the problem as part of the examination with every clinic visit. And we see this whole host of drugs succeeding in psoriasis because it's relatively easy to do a trial in psoriasis. Even our colleagues in rheumatoid arthritis, they've had a huge number of drugs come through the FDA approval process, in part because you can do an x-ray and take a look at the synovium to see if it's better or worse, and you have an objective assessment. So IBD is challenging because you have to do an invasive test, a scope, to actually get the best data. Patient symptoms are about a 50-50 matchup in terms of how they're doing. It's just not that precise, feels good, everything's perfect, not complaining. It just doesn't match up quite as easily because of underreporting or overreporting symptoms. The problems with remodeling in the GI tract, scar tissue blockages, causing a whole host of problems in our patients. And those things make it more challenging. They make it a little bit harder, but it's not impossible. It's still doable. And if you sort of build around those confounding issues, you can you can come up with solutions. Yeah, there's so many variables to try to account for in, in inflammatory bowel disease. I also have to say that I love the fact that you called it remodeling of the GI tract. That's delightful. Um, instead, instead of yes, surgically I've, altering. <laughs> I've been remodeled. I love that. I've been, re- my GI tract has been remodeled. I love it. It makes it sound like you got an upgrade, Robin. It really does make it sound like I got an upgrade. (laughs) There's a lot of remodeling going on, unfortunately. So, Indeed, indeed. Sometimes we have to remodel. Sometimes the best way to fix a house is to tear the wall down. So, okay. I'll I'll pass. I'll pass. (laughs) Okay. I am curious in the things that you've learned and in all of this data that you've looked at and all these different variables that you looked at, do you feel like we're getting closer to having a more predictive model of being able to say, you know, you have a patient that comes in, you get enough of their history where you have a decent idea of like, maybe they live with it for five years. Do you feel like you have enough information to be able to sort of predict the type of disease course this person may likely have? So that is the holy grail of the crystal ball that prognosticates accurately. And I think there are definitely things that we can use to help give us insight into where the next few years are going to be. And again, this is a direct result of just keeping track of enough people over time. So I can give a couple examples. When we think about surgery and remodeling of Crohn's disease patients, natural history studies suggest that about a third of Crohn's patients don't get surgery. They don't need surgery by 15 years of disease history. A third of the patients are operated on one time, and the remaining third have had two or more surgeries, and around 20% have had three or more surgeries over the course of the first 15 years of their illness. Now, it would be really, really helpful to identify the people who are going to face multiple surgeries, three or more surgeries, the 20% 
who are in that roughest category for challenges and problems, if we can figure out who they are as fast as possible, and then they become the people you can have a really frank discussion with in the clinic and say, listen, you have a couple of these warning signs that we really got to give you the best medicines. Don't worry about the side effects of the medicines because the illness is going to be the troublemaker. You got to worry about keeping the illness under control. And we've got great tools, but don't hesitate in, in terms of taking advantage of those tools, take advantage of the medicines. So if we look at that group that's been through multiple surgeries, we have identified biomarkers that are associated with who those people are. And we've published on this. And these are features that are coming out of the clinical chart. Everyone's chart has all this information in it. The problem is, is that we have not taken a I would say business school 101 approach of just associating these markers with outcomes. Now, it doesn't explain why the marker is there, but the association is still a pretty powerful association. And I make the analogy that in, in if you're in the field of business, you really want to keep track of what's doing well and what's not doing well, because you don't have this never, you don't have a free pass for years and years and years to do things that are ineffective because you know, in a capitalistic world, a lot of businesses go under if they're not able to sort of right the ship and head things in the right direction. In medicine, we don't do it in a in a pragmatic way. We haven't been able to embrace that concept. But because we have this wealth of knowledge or this wealth of information, better word, in our clinical charts and our computer-based clinical records, the concept of actually seeing what is associated with doing well a very simple and a pragmatic way of identifying these subgroups, perhaps. We see the markers of who's at risk, and those markers are pretty robust. They're pretty robust. If we have surgery on a patient with Crohn's and we see granulomas on the surgical tissue that has been just resected, we know that person who has had granulomas on their surgical tissue has a 50% risk of being reoperated on in the next six years. 50%. If there's no granulomas, it's about 25%. So we already have published on this. The frustration that I have is, even though that information is so, it is the bread and butter of Crohn's disease, granulomas in the tissue, we haven't been able to take advantage of this and apply it to clinical trials. We have trials that are actually looking at post-operative chemo prevention with drug therapy. Let's work on the people with the highest risk subgroups. Let's look at the people who have these biomarkers, and it's not being built into our trials. And there, there's mo many, many reasons for this. Some of the reasons are economic reasons. Some of the reasons are being stuck in a pr previous paradigm that we just can't simply move forward on. The fact that the subgroups are out there and we see the subgroups all the time is a little bit frustrating because we can make progress if we embrace these concepts. And that's largely what I spend my time thinking about in the research space. So is it just translating the research? You said clinical trials, but is it, is it clinical trials or is it to clinical practice? Because you've already published on it. So is it just changing the minds of practitioners to include it in their practice? Or does it have to go through a clinical trial process? Because you've already done the research. So I would say we identify the red flags, the warning signs. It would be nice to implement that information in a clinical trial infrastructure. 
The problem is, is that in many regards, the way we do trials in the United States limits the agents that are being tested. So if we put a biomarker into a clinical trial and demand that that biomarker be there, immediately restricts the potential for that drug to be used in a routine practice. That's unfortunate because many companies shy away from that because they don't want to invest in a restrictive use of their medicine when they need to see a return on investment when they've right. spent millions and millions, if not billions of dollars in terms of developing these agents. So, you know, the FDA has incredibly important purposes, but when the FDA label comes, the label is going to be restrictive if we include the biomarkers as part of the trial. I think the sad reality is that when they did the asthma trials, the biomarkers emerged as a win and the biomarkers showed who is going to succeed with these drugs. And we haven't been able to do that effectively on the IBD side. And that's resulting in not the physicians deciding which drug is going to be used. It sometimes results in the insurance company deciding which drugs are going to be used in which sequence. And you have to fight through these steps. Now, I I know that most people don't have that comfort level sort of matching up drugs with patient subgroups. But I, I sense that that is where we really need to make the next wave to improve things because we have tools, but how do we deploy those tools becomes the next step. You set me up for my question so perfectly. It's amazing. It's like we planned it because I am curious how, at what point do you start considering the insurance implications of this? Because like you said, right now, insurance is really getting in the way. Even if you came up with a model that says, okay, Robin is going to respond to this drug better because of these things, I can see these biomarkers. It doesn't matter in a lot of cases because the insurance is still going to say, well, she can't have that until she goes through this one or this one, and they're going to sort of get in the way. Mm -hmm. How do you incorporate the advocacy necessary to really change that paradigm as you're doing research and care? And the answer can be, I don't do that. That's okay. So I, I am not an expert on medical economics, and I don't know what the best and right answer is going to be ultimately. If I think about a societal level, other countries have a certain amount of money that is designated to take care of patients, and they need to be as efficient as possible, and they need to be as effective as possible. And if you have insight into who's going to need the more expensive agents, in part because they're just not going to succeed with the simpler agents, then there is actually makes perfect sense to make that upfront cost investment because you're going to save on the downstream uh, complications of essentially giving the wrong drug and dealing with all the sequelae of problems that could arise. So I think I think these these issues have potential solutions. Eventually, it becomes apparent that the most effective thing we can do, the most cost-effective thing we can do is get it right as fast as possible. I think that concept will ultimately emerge. You know, it's interesting, as we've done this research on the natural history, we actually had healthcare charge data as part of our phenotypes. And if you think about all of the interaction that a person might have with healthcare, the way we do healthcare in America, there's always a bill that's associated with the activity. If it's a clinic visit or a CT scan, a scope, an admission to the hospital, there's a dollar sign. There's a bill that's associated with that. If you actually unify all the silos of all these different subcategories, you actually get the perfect phenotype. So you see who's doing fantastic because their charges are incredibly low. 
is they interact very, very limited way with healthcare. I'm not talking about pharma charges. I'm just talking about the interaction with healthcare. If a person has a scope and maybe a clinic visit over the course of one or two years, their charges are fairly low. They're not going to get any lower. The person who is having unplanned care, they're in the emergency departments, they're getting admitted to the hospital because of problems. You know, one bad year out of five, they're raising their mean charges, two bad years out of five, three bad years, four, every bad year. Every bad year is about 10% of the IBD patient population. And it's not just inflammation. It's usually comorbidities. It's chronic pain issues that are really challenging. It's sometimes anxiety, depression issues that are making it really hard for people to cope with chronic illness. And those things are very destabilizing. And that causes people to seek care. And there's oftentimes bad inflammation on top of it. So it's it's a perfect storm of having a really hard time coping with really challenging bad problems and still struggling with the right medicines. So so there there is again this level of complexity. But if you see the entire tapestry, the whole story in front of you, it's not that hard. And that is the sort of missing part that I suspect is really holding us back as a field because you don't see this if you're in a practice that's not part of a healthcare network. You don't see this capture of the granular data that I'm describing. And you know, it really gives you some perspective on, on where the unmet need lies. So the unmet need is a subgroup of patients who really need help. And again, if you think about that asthma paradigm we talked about a few minutes ago, where you're really focusing in on a group of people who have the potential for a life-threatening problem, then you start to get answers and clarity very, very quickly. And I think that is a very effective way to think about these challenges. I think one of the struggles with the United States is that the way that our insurance is set up, that every year is a different plan year, is a new contract, is a potentially new insurance company for somebody so they don't have to worry about the downstream implications because they're only worrying about you as you are related to right now, the bottom line at this moment. And so there is no uh, accountability to keeping you well long-term or getting you well long-term. And so I think that's perhaps the difference in some of these other systems you're talking about is that like when it's always the same payer, <laughs> it's always the same people that are having to worry about keeping you healthy. They're very invested in getting you healthy as quickly as possible because they don't, they have to worry about you five years from now. How do we get them to care? I guess, how do we get them to care when they don't need to care beyond the end of the plan year? I'm a very simple, humble researcher in, in <laughs> the field of IBD. I don't have those type of answers. And if you had the answer, you would be a, a bajillionaire at this point, I think. Oh, it's a challenge. It's and a you'd challenge. win a Nobel Prize instead of just a Sherman Prize, probably. <laughs> so That's we'll okay. keep keep working on that. One of the things when I was looking at your your sort of PubMed page, there was one that I, I was curious about because you mentioned mental health and one of your papers had to do with possibly predicting suicidal ideation amongst folks with inflammatory bowel disease. Can you talk about that? So unfortunately, when chronic illness hits people who are already fragile, you know, it can become overwhelming. And, you know, one of our big challenges is that some of our best therapies in terms of shutting down inflammation have terrible psych side effects. So steroids really are destabilizing when it comes to people who have depression and anxiety issues. And, you know, steroids are well, are well known as a medicine that can actually cause psychosis. So when people are in the hospital on high-dose IV steroids, they can have this sort of dreamlike state in the middle of the night where they are feeling incredibly paranoid and persecuted. And these are these 
hallucinations, the hypnagogic and hypnopopic hallucinations associated with steroids, incredibly terrifying when it occurs. It's not very common, but it happens enough that we we definitely see this. So, you know, the challenge of being really sick, the challenge of being sick and, and being on these medicines when there's this predisposition to having perhaps underlying neuropsychiatric illness. And 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 again, you know, psychiatry, psychiatric problems are common. And, you know, there's an overlap that occurs in this patient subgroup. And it can be a terrible situation. I've seen it happen a few times in my career, and it's devastating because, you know, we really want to, you know, effectively reach these people before it becomes a crisis. You know, I, I think one of the big successes over the past decade has been the integration of psychiatry and mental health into IBD care. And I, I give credit to Dr. Eva Sigethy, one of my former colleagues, who really was a, a spearheading this effort over the course of her career. You know, it, it can help tremendously. You know, I, I talked about the fact that I share with patients that I personally have Crohn's. And I think it is not necessarily a support group, but there's this level of relief that you can, that's palpable when you do that. And if you can help connect with people at a level where you can help to de-stress them and to give them some sense that things are going to get better. And I don't, it's just a connection that helps in terms of alleviating that terror and that uncertainty and that anguish that people are feeling in these health problems. And we actually know at a physiologic level, when we de-stress people, we increase their vagal tone. And increasing the vagal tone in the body, you know, Kevin Tracy is a brilliant neuroscientist. He's a neurosurgeon in North, Northwell Hospital System in New York City. He's done these fantastic studies showing that if you increase vagal tone, it has a immunosuppressive effect on the body that will potentially help to bring chronic inflammation problems under control. And this is published in Nature Medicine years ago, and this led to vagal nerve stimulator trials in rheumatoid arthritis patients and vagal nerve stimulator trials that are ongoing now in people with refractory Crohn's disease. So you're basically reestablishing a homeostatic mechanism in the body that sort of brings the stress under better control at a, at a neurochemical level. That is so interesting. Are, are they putting... Where do they implant the nerve stimulator? Is it this is it this vagal nerve or is it so elsewhere? the vagal nerves are traveling from it's the cranial nerve number 10 that travels yeah. from the brain stem throughout the entire abdominal cavity, but the vagal stimulation of the spleen, when you when you have this increased vagal tone, you actually trigger the spleen to release T regulatory cells, T regs. That will huh. then, you know, suppress the body, and or better yet, it's it's restoring an immune homeostasis, an immune balance in the in the body. That's so cool. I mean, because I know they were looking at vagal nerve stimulator for other for depression has been one that they looked at. And I mean, it originally you know came from the epilepsy community, um, mm -hmm. and I know that they were looking at sort of indifferent stimulations. So that's super fascinating, huh? So oh. so when you help people de-stress who are under this horrific stress. It is therapeutic at so many levels. Super interesting. So I'm curious in your work, if there's two questions I want to ask you, I'm start with this one. So I'm curious, as you've been looking through all of this, like vast subset of data, has there been any correlations that you were particularly surprised by? So when we do our projects, we, we usually go in with a hypothesis. So we're, we're sort of not necessarily biased, but we're looking for something. We're looking for something that is, you know, the the genesis of the the experiment. So one example 
there is a molecule that's produced in the body called immunoglobulin G subclass 4, IgG4. And there were two rheumatologists at Mass General about 10, 12 years ago, John Stone and Vikram Despande, who actually published a paper in New England Journal that was a call to action that we should reclassify the diseases, the chronic inflammatory diseases where IgG4 was elevated and actually think of them in a uniform fashion because many different parts of the body can be affected by chronic inflammation where we see plasma cells expressing too much IgG4. And some of these conditions, Sjogren's syndrome, Wegener's granulomatosis, autoimmune pancreatitis type 1, retroperitoneal fibrosis, Castleman pseudolymphoma. There are all these different conditions that have fancy names that were usually the pathologists back in the 19th century who discovered the disease process. But they all share a similarity, which is if you biopsy that tissue, you see an excess number of plasma cells expressing IgG4. And they had a call to action that we should label these as the IgG4-related systemic inflammatory diseases. And when they wrote this paper in the New England Journal, they ne- they left out the GI tract. They didn't talk about the intestine or the colon. And I thought that was a little strange. I was like, wait a second, how come you left out what we would assume is a subgroup of Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis patients? So we took upon ourselves to start looking at IgG4 biology in our patients. And we thought we would see elevated IgG4 defining a subgroup of refractory people who probably respond better to steroids because that's the go-to therapy for these people who suffer from these disorders. And we found IgG4 elevation in about 5% of our patients in a refractory cohort. We looked at about 1,200 people over the course of multiple years, but they weren't definitively sicker. Some were sick, but some weren't. Some had relatively mild disease. And the IgG4 hypothesis of being a sicker, well-defined subgroup didn't come true. But then we were fortunate to say, well, wait a second, well, what if there's some people who are low, who don't make IgG4? And lo and behold, we found 20% of our patients are IgG4 deficient. And IgG4 was not well understood up until maybe 10 years ago. And it turns out that IgG4 is an immunoregulatory molecule. It's a molecule that helps to turn off inflammation. So when you see IgG4 expressing plasma cells being elevated in a tissue, it tells you that there's a B-cell-driven inflammatory process, and IgG4 is trying to tamp it down. When you don't have IgG4, when you're born without it, you have an off switch that's missing. And when we looked at the subgroup of people who had IgG4 deficiency, they were some of the sickest people we take care of. When I take care of people who have intestinal failure and end up on intravenous nutrition, it was half of our IBD patients with a need for TPN, for IV nutrition. We have a protocol for an autologous bone marrow transplant for some of our sickest patients. Half of our autologous bone marrow transplant patients were IgG4 deficient. IgG4 deficiency patients were sicker. They had higher steroid requirements. They were just, in general, really struggling. And there were no papers in the literature that even talked about IgG4 deficiency being associated with the disease process. This is the first paper I'm aware of that actually talks about an off switch in the immune system missing in our sickest cohort of patients. So that is... That's a a study that has yet to be recreated elsewhere, in part because no one ever looks for this molecule in a systematic fashion. And it's not part of how we normally take care of IBD. So I I look for it in my sicker patients because 
we have an opportunity to actually give immunoglobulin replacement therapy that probably is a critical mechanism to help these individuals get better. Is yeah, is is the treatment for that then some sort of IVIG product? So it's it is an actionable discovery, and I think it probably does help. Oh. Would that be after the bone marrow transplant? Would you do like bone marrow transplant first? No. So this is just before we try not to do bone marrow transplants on patients because that Fair. is an incredibly intense and in in some regards dangerous thing to do. It's life-saving in some settings, but a very small percentage of people really need that level of intervention. When it comes to IgG4 deficiency patients, simply giving um, immunoglobulin replacement sort of restores some of that immunologic mechanism, and that can be added onto various therapies with some success. And that's actually some, uh, again, if you if you keep track of what worked in subgroups of patients, you start to see these paradigms where certain groups will do better with certain forms of therapy. I realize you're not a pediatric researcher, but I'm, I'm wondering if this is something that you also see in like the very early onset inflammatory bowel disease. I, I've only taken care of a few of those patients in my career, and I've been in proximity to the care of some of these individuals. But those are monogenetic forms of IBD where there's really a defect in the immune system that is really, in some regards, catastrophic. And sort of replacing that dysfunctional gene, so be it an interleukin 10 receptor, the X-linked inhibitor of apoptosis protein, the XIAP mutation patients, you know, I, th- I think. It's not necessarily the autologous stem cell reconstitution. It's an allogeneic bone marrow transplant where we actually give back the working part of the immune system. And and hopefully that gets things back on track. But that's a subgroup that I I don't have a lot of personal experience with. But our our colleagues in pediatrics have done a fantastic job in that space. So my question before we have to ask you the last question, because holy cow, this, this went really fast, is... Because of your focus on research, I'm curious what you think is the next horizon, the next generation of IBD research. Where are we going? You know, there's still a lot of work to do. You know, when I look at other areas of medicine, in some regards, oncology made this um, sea change over the past few years where we don't call things breast cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer. We actually try to figure out the oncogenes that are driving the disease process. And there are some really elegant studies that that look at the, as an example, colon cancer. 80% of colon cancer is defined by four genetic subgroups. And there's the remaining 20% that are much more rare forms of the disease process. But the 80% that are really these four approximately equal subgroups match up perfectly with therapy. So you can get optimal results if you just figure out where that patient is, and then you match them up with the right form of treatment. And we have a roughly two dozen oncogenes that are known. And we have a drug for 23 out of 24 oncogenes. The one oncogene that we don't have a perfect drug for is the mutant P53, which is the dominant oncogene that drives adenocarcinomas. But if you have a disease process that's being driven by one of the other mechanisms, we have a drug for it. And that's where this concept of throwing hundreds of patients into a trial to see who might win or lose with no attempt to substratify is really unfortunate because in oncology, you don't get a lot of second chances. You've got to get it really fast. 
inflammatory diseases have not yet embraced that complexity on the diagnostic side, where we can then start to match things up. I think that's going to make the biggest impact for the existing patients. And as we get further and further understanding of the interrelationship between environment, diet, microbiome, metabolome, then we'll hopefully be able to prevent disease in the future. And that's not too, too far away. So I, I fully think that will become, you know, a few decades from now, that'll become the area of emphasis. I love to hear that. Preventing sounds good. I love to hear it. I can't believe I'm saying this, but we have been talking for over an hour and it. Thank you so, so much, uh, Dr. Binion, for sharing your expertise with us. This has been an amazing conversation. I can't wait for everyone to hear it, but it's time for me to ask the last question. So what is the one piece of advice that you have for the IBD community? And you can pick patients, you can pick providers, or you can do both. Patients need to be proactive. They they need to be a equal party in their healthcare, and they should be asking questions and, and they, they shouldn't you know, patients in this day and age should never be hopeless when it comes to IBD because we can help people. And on the provider side, I would say, you know, because we live in this world of information, you know, we should, you know, feel some, it's okay to ask for help. So when people are complex, you know, you know, there are some of us who really embrace that cohort of patients who, who want to take on those challenges. And we could probably help some of these people who would otherwise really struggle in the community setting. You know, the academic centers have a, a role, which is to take on the unmet need, the people who struggle. But in the United States, only about 15% of the IBD patients go to the big centers. 85% go to very small centers scattered throughout the country. But, you know, as as the pandemic changed the way we deliver healthcare, I, I do telemedicine throughout the whole country now. And it's actually fairly easy to seek that level of expert care and hopefully get better outcomes. So, you know, we have to keep an open mind. The paradigms are works in progress. You know, the first definition of Crohn's disease in 1932 was revised 28 years later in 1960. And the concept of, you know, revising these definitions to, again, come up with working structures that allow us to make the next level of breakthroughs is not too far away. And we should be closed off to those concepts. Love it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate you sharing all of your expertise and insight and personal story with us. And thank you everyone else for listening as well. And cheers, guys. Cheers, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. David Binion. If you enjoyed um, this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and most importantly, share it with your friends.